Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. An excellent history of Cuba came out a few years ago by a woman who came to the United States and lived in the States a while, and she's a scholar and a historian. And I really enjoyed reading that book. I can give you the title later if you're interested, but it was very well documented and fascinating to me because Cuba has affected Florida so much, and I've known so many Cuban friends over the years, and I got to visit Cuba uh, at one point. But my experience in reading the history was was kind of difficult because I kept looking for a golden age of Cuba. I kept looking for when, when the history would turn a corner and there would be a, a happy time in Cuba. And I just kept reading and reading and reading the book, and I never found it. It, it, it didn't come. Now, whether that's accurate or not, that historians can debate that. But my experience in reading the book was, when are we going to get to the, the, the happy times? When are we going to get to the Cubano Alegre period, you know, when the, the Cubans are celebrating and having a wonderful time of it? And I never got to it. Your experience in reading Romans up to this point may be something like that. Because over these last couple chapters, it has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And we have felt the the heaviness of it. And we have, in our spirits, probably cried out for relief. Well, the good news is, folks, even though we have anticipated it in, in the last few sermons, and we've mentioned that it's coming, here it is, finally, with these two little words, but now. But now, and this is, the, this is the turning point in the argument of Paul. And uh, he, 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 up to this point, there was an introductory section that we looked at, but then from chapter 1, verse 18, up until chapter 3, verse 20, he has been indicting humanity. And he has been talking about the wrath of God revealed against the sinfulness and the unrighteousness of humanity. But now he is returning to the theme that he announced back in chapter 1, verse 17. If you look at 117 and 118, you see two revelations. So in verse 17, it says, "For this is chapter 1, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous by faith shall live. And then he says in the next verse, for the wrath of God is revealed. So he says the righteousness of God is revealed, and then he says the wrath of God is revealed. Well, from verse 18 of chapter 1 up until last week, chapter 3, verse 20, it has been the wrath of God being revealed. Now he is going back to what is the main topic of this book, and that is the righteousness of God being revealed. Now, it's not that these two are against each other. We need to understand the wrath of God being revealed in order to understand the righteousness of God being revealed and how it is being revealed in a new way, the but now, a new era, a new epoch. Verse 21 of our text today, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Now, it's been made manifest in the past, but he is announcing here a new way in which the righteousness of God is being made manifest. And he says the newness of this new manifestation is that it is apart from the law, apart from the law. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, verse 21, apart from the law. And so he is saying this is a new type of manifestation. It is not dependent on the law. It is not dependent on the fulfillment of the law. It is not dependent on the works of the law. And someone might immediately say, well, Paul, are you just, are you getting rid of the law? And then he immediately says, no, because he says the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets, that's a good summary, that's a way of of, of summarizing the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. The law and the prophets prepare the way, announce this righteousness that is revealed in the present time. So it is not dependent on law, but it is prefigured by law. It is pre-announced by law. And what is this righteousness? It says in verse 22, So verse 21, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now that may sound redundant, but there are actually two different emphases here. The first emphasis is on faith. It is through faith. So it is not through the works of the law. We saw that no one would be declared right before God by the works of the law because the law, the law points out our sin, but it does not make us right before God. But now he says that this righteousness, this right standing before God, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it says, for all who believe. So isn't that saying the same thing? It's through faith for all who believe. The emphasis of that second part is on the all. It is not only through faith in Jesus Christ, it is for all who believe. So now the, 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 the gates are thrown open. All who believe are uh, recipients of this righteousness of God that comes through faith. And then he says, there is a reason why it has to be a righteousness that is through faith for all who believe. And that's at the end of verse 22. There is no distinction. There's no distinction. There's no distinction in two regards. The first, no distinction, is what we have seen since chapter 118 up to 320. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the indictment we've been hearing over these last three weeks. The indictment of Jews, the indictment of Gentiles, non-Jews. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, there are different ideas about what the glory of God is, but it looks like it's the glory for which he made humans. If you go back to the, the beginning, he made humans in what? In his image, in his likeness, with the task of showing forth his glory. And it says here that all Jews, Gentiles, we have all fallen short of that, that glory that we were made to show forth. And that's the first, no distinction. No distinction between Jews and Gentiles. All have fallen short. And then he says, verse 24, and are justified. So there's no distinction in falling short, but there's also no distinction in the way in which we are justified. And justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but in English, we have a little bit of a a disconnect here because we have the word righteousness but we don't have the verb to rightify. And we have the, the, the word justice, and we have the word justify. But this is, these are all the same root words here. And so uh, righteousness is not one thing and justice another in this text. Um, it, to, to have righteousness before God is to be rightified before him, to be declared to be in the right before him to be justified, to be rightified, if we can make up a new word. So remember, when you see in this text, justification or justified or justice, righteousness, uh, and um, um, yeah, righteousness, we don't see rightify in here because it's not a a word, I just made it up. But when you see these, they all come together, the same kind of concept. Now, it says here that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory, and all those who believe are justified, verse 24, in three, with three aspects, by his grace as a gift. That's kind of redundant, but as a gift means no payment on the part of those who have it. So it is a justification, it is a rightification, a being put in the right before God that involves no payment on our behalf. It is, it is free, it is a gift. And then it is also by his grace, which emphasized the freeness of it, but it also emphasizes the favor of God towards sinners. So it is because of his favor towards sinners. It is free of charge for us. It is because of his favor towards sinners. And it is through the redemption or the rescue that is in Christ Jesus. So there we're getting into the the mechanism. How did this come about? It is free. It is it is by God's grace, but, but how did it happen? What took place so that we might be put in the right before God? And the answer is the redemption or the rescue that is in Christ Jesus. And then at the, in verse 25, we have a, an explanation of that redemption. What did Christ do exactly to rescue us, to redeem us? And it says, God put him forward as a, our text says, propitiation. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. So by his blood refers to his death. So his death was a propitiation. And once again, it is received by faith. Now, this, um, this word that's translated here, propitiation, you'll find it translated variously in different translations. And these translations are getting at different aspects of it. You will find sometimes they say, well, propitiation is too, too difficult a word. We'll use expiation, which is no less difficult a word, is it? 
So these are, these are unusual words, right? You'll see, for example, in the New International Version, it spells it out as a sacrifice of atonement. But atonement is not a, a common word either. Well, this is not a common word. In fact, it's the only time that Paul uses it in all of his writings. And that makes it more difficult to figure out what it means. If somebody uses a word only once, uh, it's, it's, you have to figure out from the use of it, from the context, what he is saying about it. Now, we're, we're not completely without help because there's one other time when it is used in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews. And it's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And there, it's referring to a place. It's referring to a place. Um, it says here, above it, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, above it, above what? Above the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you were here for the Exodus series, you will remember that there was a tabernacle that God told Moses to build. There was a holy place, and then there was a holy of holies, the holiest place. And in that holy of holies, the holiest place, there was a box, a chest. It's usually called an ark. And it says, over it, above it, verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory. These were sculptures of angelic beings, the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, the mercy seat. That word mercy seat is the same word that Paul used that's translated in Romans propitiation. Now, um, if we go back to, I, I hope I'm not losing you with this, but if we go back to the, the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, so if we're dealing with the same Greek language, the Old Testament, which was Hebrew and Aramaic, but translated into Greek, that uses this word, that Paul uses here, and it uses it a number of times, and it refers to the mercy seat, that place over the, the chest of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we need to ask, what took place there? What took place in that, that place over the chest, over the Ark of the Covenant? We go back to Leviticus 16. Are you with me? Okay, you go back to Leviticus 16, and you find that once a year it came into use. Once a year it came into use when the, the high priest would take a sacrifice, at the blood of a sacrifice, and it would be offered in that place to make atonement, expiation, propitiation. What do all these words mean? To take away the sin and the consequences thereof. To take away the sin and the displeasure of God, called in Romans, the wrath of God against sinners for the offenses that they had committed. So now, all that, take all that, and let's go back to Romans chapter 3. It says in verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation, or as some translators, as a mercy seat, as a mercy seat by his blood. So what's it saying? It's saying Jesus is the one who fulfilled what was anticipated in that, that day of atonement when the blood of an animal, a, a substitute, a sacrifice was presented before God and the death of that animal and the blood that was shed there would turn away God's wrath from the sinners and spare the people. And now the whole argument of Hebrews is that it wasn't really working. It was anticipating what would really work. 
The blood of bulls and goats can't really take away human sin. It was, it was a figure. It was a, a picture of what was coming and what was coming. This is what was coming. It was that Christ, by his own blood, would be that, that sacrifice for the sins of the people that would turn away God's wrath from the, those who were in him. In other words, we can say that Christ's death is how God's requirements are satisfied, the just requirements of his law, and how God is reconciled to sinners, how he is reconciled to sinners. And once again, we see that the reconciliation affected by Christ's death is through faith, is through faith. Verse 25, so whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As you know, I was in Mexico for almost, well, two and a half decades, 24 years on the ground there, Sandy and I and our family. And, and I would, uh, as I would talk to people about the gospel, there was a, a, a common response. And I would talk about this propitiation, that, that Christ had satisfied all the demands of, uh, of the law and he had taken away God's wrath and that we receive this by faith. And, and time and time again, time and time again, people would say to me, Así de fácil, which means that easy. And I would always respond and say, easy for whom? And you see, that's what's emphasized here. Easy for whom? Free for us and yet costly for Christ. It's free for us precisely because it was costly for Christ. So easy for whom? Easy for us, yes, it is free of charge, it is by God's grace, it is favor towards sinners, but it was costly for Christ, it cost him his life. Now, what was the purpose? Verse 25, verse 25, it says, whom God put forth as this mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, there's a problem here, and it's not a problem that we probably feel the weight of. It's not a problem that keeps us up at night. There, there's a problem here, and the problem is this, that God appears to be too lenient in the Old Testament period too lenient, too indulgent in the Old Testament period. Now, when we read the Old Testament, that's not the problem we have with the Old Testament. To us, he seems too wrathful, too strict, too demanding. But the problem is that he was too lenient. And by being too lenient, you, we can go all the way back to the first humans, can't we? In the day in which you eat of this, dying, you shall die. They ate of it, and they didn't die, which, which calls into question God's seriousness about his own law. It calls into question his justice. Is he really a just God? Is he really going to uphold his law or not? You see, modern Westerners wonder how a good God can exercise his wrath. Whereas the real problem is how a righteous, just God 
can withhold his wrath and still be just. You see, that's the problem here. Look at verse 25 again. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's justiceness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And we might say, that's great, God passed over former sins, but is he really serious about sin if he passed over them? And then it says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Show his righteousness. And so what is the answer here? The answer is that he did not deny his his justice. He merely postponed it. He postponed his justice. And in this present time, when the, the Son of God was presented as the mercy seat for sinners, God satisfied the demands of his justice in the death of Christ as the sacrifice for our sins. So that's why he could be apparently lenient in the Old Testament period and not punish every sin with the rigor it deserved because he was delaying the the pouring out of his justice. But in Christ, the mercy seat, the the sacrifice for our sins, his justice was, was meted out, but not on the sinner, but on the substitute. He satisfied it. Therefore, there is this fascinating conclusion here. It says, therefore, in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or he might be right and the rightifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or he might be righteous and the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I want that to sink into our hearts because that is a fascinating, and if if we could use the word ingenious, solution to the problem. You see, God could simply have been just and, and meted out his justice to the full extent of the law on every sinner. And... God could have been the justifier of of sinners, but simply overlooking his law, and then he would no longer be just. But how is it possible for God to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ? And the answer is through the sacrifice of Christ. He did not deny the the least iota of his own law. He, he, He poured out the, the satisfaction of his law, his just law, and the punishment that sins deserve on the substitute. So he is just. But since there is a substitute, he is the justifier of those who believe in that substitute. Now that is the, the marvel of the gospel. And now we get to why Paul was so proud of this gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. And then Paul goes back to his conversation. You remember in chapters 1 to 18, he was having this conversation with somebody, usually with a Jew, saying, what then? And then he would answer, he'd raise the objection, then he would answer it. Well, he goes back to that conversational style here. Verse 27, he asks, what then of boasting 
Or where, then, is there room for boasting? And so now it looks like he's going back and talking to probably another Jewish conversation partner. And the, the answer is it, is, it is excluded by what we just saw. By, by this solution to our sin and the satisfaction of God's righteousness in the death of Christ, what becomes of our boasting? And who might be tempted to boast? Well, probably, probably more likely the Jews. The Jews who said, we have the law. And, and some of them would say, we have kept the law. Or conceivably some Gentiles could boast and say, yeah, you have the law, but we actually keep the law written on our hearts. We saw that, that, that theoretical possibility. So anybody could boast, but it's probably the, the Jew who is boasting here. And Paul says, that's excluded. That's excluded. And then he says, by what kind of law? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. By the law of faith. Now, here we see Paul's ability to use different meanings of words, related meanings, because he says a law of works, no, but by the law of faith. Wait a minute, law of faith? Uh, poor Martin Luther tied himself in knots over this because he would put law over here and faith over here. How can there be a law of faith? But if it looks like what Paul is doing here, he is using the word law as rule or principle. What is the principle involved here? By what kind of law, what kind of principle, does a principle of works exclude boasting? No. A principle of works encourages boasting because the one who thinks that he or she has done the works that, uh, that God requires can boast and say, look what I have done. So a principle of works encourages boasting. What about a principle of faith? What about a principle of faith? Now, if we misunderstand faith and think that it is somehow a great accomplishment on our part, then we could boast in our faith. But that's to misunderstand faith. Faith is the, the empty hander of the hand of the beggar receiving the gift of the king. The, uh, faith is that, that conduit by which God's grace flows. It is, not, it is not meritorious in and of itself. It is not something about which we can boast. It is empty of boast. And so this principle of works, this rather this principle of faith, excludes boasting. And then in verse 28, he makes a, a creedal statement. A creedal statement. We hold. And if, if you want to memorize the whole chapter, memorize the whole chapter, this whole section, but if you want to memorize kind of the, the, the creedal statement, the boiling down, the essence of what is going on here. For we hold, and he's talking about Christians. If we are Christians, this is our doctrine. This is our belief. This is our creedal statement. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that's empty of boasting. And then he raises another question with this, this Jewish interlocutor. Verse 26, or 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the peoples also? Yes, of peoples also. And the answer is, since God is one. Does that sound familiar? God is one. This is, this is what the Jews declared. To this day, this is, this is their basic creedal statement. The Lord our God, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one. And it looks like Paul is pulling that out here, a reference to that. That he is saying, is God the God of the peoples as well? 
And he says, remember your statement, fellow Jews. Remember what you declare. How many gods are there? And the Jews declare, there is one God. And he is saying, if there is one God, he is not some small parochial national deity. He is the God of all. That's the first argument. Your own confession of one God means that there is only one God for all of the peoples of the earth. But then the second argument that he goes on and says, this one God will justify the circumcised, those are the Jews, by faith and the uncircumcised through, the text says, the faith. In other words, the same faith. So the the uncircumcised, the peoples, the nations. And so there is one God, and so there must be one God who is the God of all the peoples. And for the second reason is the way of justification for the Jew and the way of the justification for all the non-Jews is the exact same way. He will rightify the Jew through faith in Jesus. He will rightify the peoples through faith in Jesus. And then one final question and answer. Do we then overthrow the law? You could come to that conclusion, couldn't you? You could say Paul is just getting rid of the law here. If he's putting the Jew and the Gentile on the same footing, then he is getting rid of the importance of the law. And Paul responds to that with his strong negative, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, in Romans, there are two ways in which the gospel upholds the law. We've seen one of them now, and we'll see one of them later. What we've already seen is this is that justification through the death of Christ upholds the law in all its vigor because the death of Christ satisfies all the just demands of the law. So the gospel doesn't undercut the law. The the gospel fulfills the law. Jesus said that, didn't he? I come to fulfill the law. Now the other way, and you'll have to wait a few chapters for this one, to chapter 6 and following, the other way justification upholds the law is it puts us on a course, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, to live out the law in our lives. But you'll have to hold on for that one. Now, if someone were to ask us, what is shown forth in the gospel? You're a Christian, and you believe the gospel. What is shown forth in the gospel? It's likely that we would answer something like this, the love of God is shown forth in the gospel. The grace of God is shown forth in the gospel. The mercy of God is shown forth in the gospel. The forgiveness of God is shown forth in the gospel. The favor of God is shown forth in the gospel. And all these answers are biblical and right. However, strikingly for us, what Paul is insisting on in these first three chapters is that in the gospel, The righteousness of God is shown forth. And we've seen two ways in which the righteousness of God is manifested. One, in the revelation of his wrath against sinners. That is a manifestation of God's righteousness. And also, in the removal of his wrath from sinners. That is not a Undercutting of his righteousness through the death of Christ, that is an establishing, an affirming of his righteousness. 
So, if God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath against sinful humanity, and God's righteousness is revealed in his providing the only adequate provision for the sins of humanity, then to get personal, each human, each human will inevitably show forth in his or her life the righteousness of God. And you will do it in one of two ways. Either you will show forth God's righteousness by receiving in your own person for all eternity the wrath that your sins deserve, or you will show forth God's righteousness by receiving by faith the satisfaction for your sins and the redemption that his death and only his death provides. So, choose how you will do it. Choose how you will show forth God's righteousness. You don't have the choice of opting out of this. You can't say, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to show forth God's righteousness. No, you are going to in one way or the other. So choose how you will do it. Either as an object of his wrath or as a trophy of his grace. Let's pray. Our God, we come to this text and marvel once again every time I read this that you are just and the one who justifies. I marvel once again at the beauty, the ingenuity, the wisdom of the cross of Christ, that in the death of Christ, you satisfied your own demands and are just. And in the death of Christ, you satisfied them for all who believe in Jesus so that you might make us right before you. God, we praise you for upholding your law in the manifestation of your wrath and for upholding your law in the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. And God, I pray for all of us that we would all choose by faith in Christ to be trophies of grace and that all of us would receive by faith the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through his blood. We pray in his name. Amen.